You're listening to TIP. My guest today is Joseph Shaposhnik. Joseph is portfolio manager of TCW's New America Premier Equities Fund. Joseph also serves as a senior equity analyst in the Equity Research Group with coverage responsibility for the industrials and basic materials sectors. Prior to joining TCW in 2011, he was an equity analyst associate at Fidelity, where he focused on the semiconductor and entertainment software sectors. In this episode, you will learn unconventional wisdom from strategies that Joseph has learned from working under Joel Tillinghast, Will Danoff, and under mentorship from Brian Jellison. How he has shaped his strategy for his fund that has outperformed its benchmark by 3.5% since inception. An overview of some of the fund's top holdings, including Constellation Software, FactSet, and Broadcom. Insights from Buffett's investments in TSM and Precision Cast Parts, and a whole lot more. Joseph brings a type of level-headedness and consistency you would expect from someone who's consistently beaten the market for more than a decade. There's a lot here, so without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Joseph Shaposhnik. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie, and today we are super excited to have on the show Joseph Shaposhnik. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you. Great to be with you, Trey. We're so excited to have you here, mainly because you've had this incredible career working under so many incredible names in finance. And I'd like to cover a few of them here at the top and kind of help us understand how you shaped your own investment approach through working with these titans in the space. So the first one that stood out to me was Will Danoff. When you were an analyst covering semiconductors at Fidelity, you were funneling ideas up to Will and uh, he managed the Contra Fund. So for those unfamiliar, the Contra Fund is the largest actively managed stock or bond mutual fund run by one person. As of late, it's had around $100 billion in assets. I have a hard time imagining what it'd be like to be responsible for $100 billion, but I'm wondering if you got a glimpse of it while working underneath Will and any other styles or lessons you picked up while working for him. Will is an amazing guy. I was at Fidelity right out of college. And so, as you said, I covered the semiconductor industry and then later on the software industry uh, for the firm's US domestic equity funds. And obviously, Will was running a lot of money back then as he's running a lot of money today. He, uh, you know, just an amazing man, incredibly passionate about helping his investors. You know, an investor wrote a letter to him just as he started his fund and talked about how they were putting money aside for, their newborn, and they hoped that money would grow and, and grow into uh, something that they could finance that newborn's college uh, experience. And Will posted that letter on his wall. So all of us as, as analysts understood how seriously Will took his job and how seriously we should take our job. So he got a huge heart, super passionate about what he did. He was as close to Peter Lynch as you get at Fidelity. You know, he took the same level of passion, energy, style in terms of earnings growth as his focus. And what I remember about him is he brought a very high level of intensity to his job. He, you know, his style was to meet 10, 11 companies a day at Fidelity. And so at Fidelity, we had a whole floor dedicated to company meetings. And I think Will lived on that floor and was there every day seeing one company after another. And looking for the great ideas, he was all about focusing on 
uh, great businesses that were getting better. And so he would spend a lot of time with management. He would spend a lot of time understanding the stories and he'd spend a lot of time asking basic questions. You know, I, I can remember being in a meeting with him and the Chipotle management team on the IPO roadshow. Uh, he, he walked in and he asked them, you know, if they made burritos, if that was their business. He'd ask the basic questions and he wanted to see how management would articulate their business and whether management really understood their business. He spent a lot of time focusing on investing with successful people. So he'd call it betting with billionaires. And so one of his approaches, one of his strategies was finding successful people and then doubling down on them and betting on them again and again and again. And that was a strategy that worked uh, incredibly well for him. I can also remember Will was a learning machine. He would learn and adjust and learn and adjust. And I can remember going to one of the Berkshire meetings with Will sitting next to him and just watching him take notes throughout a three-hour meeting, you know, in 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 a in a large stadium, listening to Buffett. He was just learning and learning and adjusting. And uh just over time, he became an incredible investor. And obviously he's today he's managing, I think, you know, a hundred billion in contra fund, but you know, another 50 billion and a couple of other funds at Fidelity. So just an incredible passion, uh, a strategy that was focused on investing in good businesses only that were getting better and a great heart and super passion about helping his investors. What I'm kind of curious about is if you saw a strategy that led to Will letting go of companies, what was the turnover like? You know, everyone wants to find these long-term holds. Was there a thesis that was broken along the way or some example that notify him that maybe informed you of what to look for when you knew it was time to get out of a position? He was very flexible. If you provided him with uh, uh, facts that were different or contrary to the investment thesis, he would change. And back then, his turnover was higher than it is today. So he he was flexible, and he would he would change very very quickly. I think for him, I think great investors have a north star, and her, his north star was always earnings per share. And so he was constantly assessing his confidence and, and maybe the analyst confidence level around where earnings per share was going to be a year, three years, and five years out. And if he sensed that that story or that confidence or the actual earnings were shifting against the story, he was likely to make a change. So he would stick with businesses for some periods of time. He, he could stick with them for long periods of time. But if he felt as though the story was changing or his North Star was shifting, he would certainly make a change. And you were an expert in semiconductors at the time, and you were rolling up ideas to him that way. But then you mentioned Chipotle, right? These are very different industries. Was there a circle of competence involved with Will? Were there ideas that would flow up to him that you would obviously see were much more in his wheelhouse than others? And he would be careful about picking between the two? Certainly. He was always looking for the great winners. And so one of the areas he looked for the great winners in were in new issues. He was always looking at new issues because he thought these businesses could become big over time. And he was always thinking about what is the next Starbucks? What is the next Home Depot? What is the next Cisco? Those are the businesses that he saw get really big over his time. And so he he had the ability to stay young and stay nimble and stay flexible at looking for the great winners as he saw them, the 10-baggers, as Peter Lynch called them, of course. That term uh, persisted throughout Fidelity. So he would look for the early early businesses early in their uh, maturity cycle. 
And of course, he was looking across all businesses to find those businesses that could grow earnings per share at a high rate uh, with managements that uh, were high quality that, that he could get comfortable with. He would stay away. He tended to stay away from the cyclicals. He tended to stay away from businesses that were kind of low quality or low return on capital. And he tended to focus on technologies, consumer discretionary, somewhat consumer staples. Those were his key uh, key areas. And another legend over there is uh, Joel Tillinghast. And you were working under him at Fidelity for a while as well. He was a portfolio manager of the equities division there. Talk to us a little bit about your experience with Joel, what you picked up from him along the way. You know, it's interesting. Joel, Will, and Jeff Finnick, who ran Magellan at one point, all came out of the same analyst class at Fidelity in the in the early 80s. So an amazing class of investors that came out together. Maybe that had something to do with their success. Maybe it didn't, but quite an amazing group of investors that all came out together and grew up together, I think, under the influence of Peter Lynch. So they they learned from, you know, the, the great one of that time. Joel had, uh, you know, obviously Joel was uh, a great value investor, very much focused on valuation, very valuation sensitive. And, you know, what I remember about Joel is he could run multiple value strategies inside of his fund. So he was, he was looking for high free cash flow yield. He was looking for small cap and cheap. He was looking for low EV to sales businesses. And he could piece all of that together and run multiple strategies in what at the time I think was a $30 billion small cap fund, which is amazing. You know, most small cap funds close at three or four billion. I don't know what he's running now, but I assume it's a quite a, quite a bit of money. But under he, you know, in a portfolio that that had that level of that high level of assets, he could run multiple value strategies with the I think with the focus of being able to outperform in different market backdrops. He was very successful at doing that. So when I think of him, I think of somebody who could follow a thousand stocks well, run multiple value strategies at the same time well and do that for quite a long period of time. So just, you know, another legend over there who was, uh, you know, influenced, certainly very influential in shaping the way I thought about investing. Now, before you got into investing, you were an intern at Microsoft. I realized you always kind of knew you wanted to get into investing. So I believe there was an experience you had with Bill Gates at his house for dinner and um, probably had a big impact on you, I imagine. What was that experience like being around Gates, when, especially at a young age? How did Gates direct you on your investment journey when you asked him about it? Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was an amazing night. He invited some of the uh, summer employees of, of Microsoft to his house for dinner. And of course, we didn't really know what to expect. And we, it, was a, you know, it was a beautiful dinner out in his backyard on the lake. And I, I remember him coming down and from his house and speaking with us. And as you mentioned, I had the opportunity to talk to him about investing, which was what I was really interested in. Microsoft, not that interested in, in it. But uh, I remember him being incredibly fascinated by Warren Buffett. I remember him talking about how he spent a lot of time with Buffett and spent a lot of time reading about Buffett. And I remember him saying two things to me. The first one was that uh, successful people in most ventures start really early. So he had seen a study that he, I think, thought uh, was important. And he mentioned that to me. And I think that was something that was super encouraging to me because, as you mentioned, I started really early. And the second thing he mentioned and emphasized was that uh, I should immerse myself in Buffett. And 
was fortunate to at an early age do that and to attend the meetings and and read his letters and spent a lot of time studying what he did with the partnership, studying uh, how he ran Berkshire and built Berkshire, and just learned a lot by doing that. So what about Buffett did you kind of hang on to? And then where did you find paths to diverge from? I think Buffett is so interesting because everybody takes something different from his incredible body of work. You know, he, he is such a great teacher and also obviously a legendary investor that we all learn something different, I think, from, from him. Uh, you know, what I learned from him was when I analyze his success, to me, his greatest investing successes came from investing in high quality businesses. And when I think of his great investments, I think of Coke, I think of Gillette, and I think of Cap Cities. And when we go back and we study those investments, we find that he was willing to pay up for the great businesses of his time. So just as you, as you think about Coke, I think he made the original investment in, in 88 or 89. And he paid, I think when we looked at it, 24, 25 times earnings, which was a 50% premium to the market multiple. Similarly, in some of these other high quality business cases or high quality businesses, he was willing to pay up for the great businesses that would compound at high rates and, and generate high returns for a long period of time. So my lesson from Buffett wasn't that you should look for the cigar butts, look for the cheap businesses that you would hope or believe would turn around. It was to find the great businesses that generate high returns and great free cash flow and be willing to pay a little bit more for those businesses in order to partner with a great business and a great team. So while I love learning about Buffett and he's kind of my go-to, I always love learning about people you don't hear about every day. You've had some mentors along the way who are well-known in their industries, but might not be as well-known to you know the masses outside of finance. So I'd love to kind of learn a little bit more about your time being mentored by Brian Jellison, who, who seemed to be this very amazing mentor to many people along the way and a very generous person with his knowledge and philanthropy and other things. He was a head of Roper Technology. So I'm kind of curious how you came across his path and anything else you may have gleaned from him. Well, I was uh, fortunate to be the industrials analyst at TCW from 2011 to, 20, to 2018. And at the time, uh, Roper was not called Roper Technologies, but it was called, I believe, Roper Corporation or just Roper. And or I think it was Roper Industries. And Brian became CEO of the company in 2001. And the company at the time was a billion dollar market cap business. So, billion dollar market cap maker of industrial pumps. So cyclical business, he had come from an industrial conglomerate before that. And uh, I think he learned all the things he didn't want to do with Roper from working at a, at a conglomerate. When he retired in 2018, Roper had a market cap of approximately $30 billion. So it was a 25X over that 17-year period of time. What I took from following him, we were fortunate to invest in 2012. So um, we've been investors now for quite a long period of time. But what I learned from following him and uh, reading everything that he had written is that it's important to think differently, even as an industry, and to develop a North Star. So his North Star was focusing on cash return on investment. So he was focused on cash flow and, uh, and the investment re required to generate that cash flow. That drove all of his decision making. 
So he had a business at the time when he took over that had a relatively low cash return on investment, highly cyclical and relatively undifferentiated. And he spent the next 15 or 16 years transforming that business into a, a business that owned dozens and dozens of niche businesses that were highly recurring and that generated consistently growing free cash flow. And I think that the focus on niche businesses is a real differentiator. Uh, he focused on niche businesses because he thought niche businesses attracted less competition and were more defensible. So his his focus was on building these smaller but healthy growing niche businesses that would generate cash flow, throw it off, give it to him, and allow him to reinvest in, in other good businesses. For him, it was a progression. So he moved the business from industrial focus, which was uh, heavy capital intensity, to industrial focus with low capital intensity, so higher free cash flow. So he bought a a bridge tolling business, which which he considered to be industrial. And so the bridge tolling business would sell tags, which were recurring, and that was a defensible niche. He then moved the business to a networking, a, a business that would invest in network-like businesses. So he bought a freight matching business, and then he progressed the business to healthcare consumables. And in the end, he began to focus on software. So his North Star was always cash return on investment and the rate at which he could compound free cash flow per share over a long period of time in, an, in a defensible way. So he, over time, transformed the business. And I think more recently, Roper has announced that they're spinning off the remainder of their industrial businesses. So it's, it was a full transformation that, that uh, he presided over. And I think the other key lesson from Brian, just a, a great man, was uh, he certainly adopted a decentralized model, which of course is common for many successful businesses like this. And I think he studied Buffett and he studied the decentralization model that Buffett had adopted along with others. And that was incredibly helpful for Brian and being able to manage 35, 40 different businesses and to continue to be able to add on to those businesses and those platforms. So as I think about him, those are the key lessons. And just think of him as somebody who would get up at, at an investment conference and incredibly colorfully talk about why Roper was great, super differentiated, and why everybody else was way out to lunch and not running their business in the right way. So it's just a really great, great CEO, a great guy to be around. And unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, just think of him uh, incredibly fondly and somebody who certainly shaped the way we assess businesses, whether they're industrial businesses or data analytics businesses or software businesses. So it sounds like he was influenced by Buffett, but maybe Charlie Munger as well on that last point there. I think that's <laughs> right. I think that's right. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. 
If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So with all of these experiences and these different strategies you've come across, what conventional wisdom have you come to disagree with, especially the ones that we're all pretty familiar with? I imagine there's some that stood out to you that said, you know what, this doesn't actually jive with me or my strategy. Uh, I think that there are several. The first one is, from our perspective, I had been an analyst covering the most cyclical industries, semiconductors, then industrials, then chemicals. And so I had seen what it was like to invest in deep cyclicals, businesses that had limited uh, moats and businesses that were super capital intensive. So one of my key takeaways is predictability is far more important than a low starting valuation. If you can't predict the business or what the, where the earnings are going to be in a year or two, you can't determine whether the business is fairly valued or not. So as I think about just the sheer number of variables that go into what impacts a stock, it's enormous. And I think about all of the analysts that were studying Facebook and how they couldn't anticipate that Apple was going to come in and disintermediate the ad model. I think about everybody that was studying Intel and AMD. And I think that almost nobody 10 years ago would have predicted that AMD would be larger than Intel or the same size. And I think that you know the data indicates that half of the S&P Will, won't be in the S&P 500 in 15 years. So for us, it means that we're really focused on narrowing the number of variables down to a number of variables that we can actually get our arms around 
in order to predict where the business is going to be. So we focus a lot on recurring revenue and businesses that are in defensible niches. We think that if a business has substantial recurring revenue, it decreases the risk that we're going to be wrong in assessing where the free cash flow will be in a year or two or in five years. And so it's one incredibly important element that we think reduces the risk of making a decision. So I think one of the first unconventional lessons is predictability is as important as a low starting valuation. Um, I think the second uh, key takeaway for, uh, as we think about conventional wisdom and, and what's important is limiting your turnovers. So as I think about, and I think about that in a basketball context. So um, the great Nick Cronin, uh, UCLA's current basketball coach, he talks about the importance of limiting turnovers. And uh, he, he t- brings it to a mathematical formula, which I think applies to investing. He says, if you have fewer turnovers and you have more rebounds than the other team, you're likely to have more possessions and you're likely to have more shots. So I think the same rule applies to managing a portfolio. If you can limit the number of businesses that decline substantially, you've got a much better chance of outperforming. If your portfolio is constantly taking significant drawdowns in positions, it's much harder for your winners to overcome those declines and for you to deliver good performance. So I bring it back to basketball and limiting your turnovers, which in investing means trying to narrow the magnitude of the outcomes with the investments that you make in order to reduce the the investments that are going to hurt you the most. So again, that goes back to predictability, defensiveness, and we'll get to free cash flow, but free cash flow as well. I think that the third key unconventional lesson is that what we found is that cheap businesses are usually cheap for a reason. Inexpensive businesses, particularly those that, that generate low returns on capital and that are incredibly uh, capital intensive, they tend to not be long-term winners. And so if, if that's your focus, you're always focused on trying to buy them cheap and then ride them when the business improves and then sell them before the capital intensity ramps up again, or the story gets more difficult, or the economy goes the wrong way. And so that creates a significant tax bill for investors. And it creates another job for the investment manager, which is you have to now take that money and find another place for it. So that's difficult. From our perspective, why not just buy a great compounding business that will get better over time and one that you don't have to sell? Uh, The fourth out of five is that Free cash flow is king. It's not EBITDA, it's not revenue, and it's not earnings. We think that free cash flow physically moves stock prices. It allows companies to reinvest in projects. It allows companies to buy in their shares and increase your ownership, assuming you're not selling. It allows a company to buy other businesses and uh, improve those businesses and hopefully add value to the franchise itself. Uh, So for us, Free cash flow per share is our North Star. And as we think about building a compounding machine, which is what we focus on, building a compounding machine, we we are focused on finding those businesses that can compound free cash flow per share at the highest rate with risk under control. And so for us, it's not about revenue growth or EBITDA or necessarily earnings. It's about what does the business generate at the end of the day, which is free cash flow. And the last key, I think, unconventional lesson is that if a stock has doubled or even tripled, you haven't missed it. 
when you think about the great compounding businesses, the great businesses of our time, as you think about Microsoft or Starbucks or Meta when it was great, or some of these other businesses, uh, these businesses, they go up many, many fold. If you look at Roper, I mean, Roper went up 25 fold over the course of that period of time. You could have bought it in the second inning of the story. You could have bought it in the fifth inning of the story, and you would have done remarkably well. So one of the, you know, I think one of the other lessons is the great CEOs, the Bill Gates's, the Larry Ellison's, uh, the Jeff Bezos of the world, they're not selling after the stocks doubled or stocks tripled. They're holding on to these great businesses for long periods of time. So I think the key conclusion is if a stock has doubled or even tripled and the story is getting better uh, over time, you haven't missed it and it may be worth your time to look at. Okay, so now let's talk about Joseph Shaposhnik, because you have had this incredible run in your career so far, and you're just getting started, but you've been running the TCW New America Premier Equities Fund, which is benchmarked against the Russell 1000 Growth Index. And the fund has produced 15.84% since its inception versus the Russell's 12.3%. So 3.54% of alpha. I want to dive into a few of the top holdings of the fund and some of them are especially interesting because they would be considered quote overweight, you know, in a lot of other funds. So you were talking about looking for companies that avoid disruption. I find this so interesting because technology is kind of built to be disrupted in a way, but they're also the most asset light businesses with <laughs> that throw off the most free cash flow. So there's almost sometimes this trade-off and I always find it interesting to study these types of companies who can have sort of monopolistic, let's say, attributes or potential monopolistic attributes, but then also might be at risk of being thrown out by something else. Your point about Facebook and Apple a minute ago kind of stands out. So the top holding here is Constellation Software. And I first learned about Constellation when I was interviewing Larry Cunningham, who's the vice chair of the board, but I never took a great deeper look at it from that conversation. So I'm, I'm hoping to come back to it now and learn from you about what makes Constellation such a great business? Well, you know, our strategy, as we've talked about, is focused on investing in predictable growth businesses that generate consistent free cash flow, partnering with management teams that treat shareholders as partners, businesses that have a track record of great reinvestment of their free cash flow and the opportunity to do more of that, and businesses that trade at a reasonable multiple of free cash flow. Constellation is the embodiment of the free cash flow compounding machine. As you may know, it's an owner operator of several hundred vertical market software businesses across many different industries. 70% of revenues are tied to long-term maintenance contracts on the software that is embedded with customers. And it's a decentralized business that has hundreds of Constellation software leaders across the world looking for great investment opportunities and acquisition opportunities. And it's a business that's compounded free cash flow per share at 30% for, I think, 20 years or so with a very unusual formula of uh, some organic, but mostly inorganic growth. I think the ideal business generates high returns on capital with the core business, and then has the opportunity to reinvest the cash flow that it generates to generate more high returns or to continue to generate high returns on invested capital. And for us, you know, we're always looking for defensiveness. And this business gives us great defensiveness, super diversified, 70% recurring revenue, critical software, which is difficult to replace, 
niche focus, not looking to compete against the biggest software players in the world. So as an example, they, they sell software to golf clubs. They sell software to bowling alleys. They sell software to construction equipment makers, window repair shops, basic software for basic customers. And so we love the defensiveness of the business. You know, in the Great Recession of 2009, they continue to grow free cash flow. They continue to generate reasonable growth. The defensiveness is incredibly attractive. No customer concentration, super diversified, highly recurring. And as importantly, run by one of the great capital allocators of our time, Mark Leonard. And so Mark is a very unique individual. He, um, you know, he spent his life studying the great compounders and building a business that, you know, worked for him, but embodies all of the lessons of the great compounders. So he studied Buffett. He studied ITW. He studied Jack Henry. He can tell you everything about those businesses. And he built this incredible decentralized business that has a culture that works, that has a culture that takes care of the customer and has the ability to expand out and decentralize the capital allocation decisions to the the farthest flung employee. If that's in Japan or in Sao Paulo or in Spain, all of those uh, individuals and those teams are empowered to make investment decisions and, and, and acquisitions. And I think that's given Constellation an incredible advantage over the software-focused private equity firms in the U.S. domicile private equity firms who are competing for similar assets as well. It's allowed Constellation to buy very small businesses and do many, many small acquisitions, which for large businesses is time-consuming. But for a company that is decentralized in decision-making, it allows that to occur efficiently. And what we found is that those small acquisitions tend to deliver the best returns. And so that has allowed Constellation to deliver incredibly high returns on capital. So to give you a sense, today, the business generates about 40% returns on capital, and it deploys all of its free cash flow to acquiring other businesses. So just incredible. You know, A good business in the United States might generate 18% returns without diluting those returns with acquisitions. This business has been able to generate 40% for a long period of time while doing while redeploying all of its excess free cash flow. So it's an incredible compounding machine run by an exceptional manager who runs it very conservatively and has an incredible record. So it's something we've been very comfortable with. And as you mentioned, it's been a large our largest holding now, I think for five or six years. And as you talked about, it's been uh, you know between ten and fifteen percent of the fund for a long period of time. That's a bit unusual. We think that it, it provides us with great downside protection, and we just have great confidence in the durability of the model and the team. And speaking of the team, another point that's worth noting is the level of insider ownership of the company. So that currently sits around, I believe, three point five billion dollars worth of ownership, and that clearly shows major skin in the game from management. And I, I imagine that's another point you look at when you're when you're studying management and something to give you a little bit more reassurance. We certainly do. And I think one of the other key tenets of ours is to look at what management incentives are. So we spend a lot of time looking at the proxy and analyzing what, what their incentives are. And you know, one of the great parts of the constellation incentive structure is that management and employees are required to take their cash bonus and purchase shares on the open market. 
So, and hold those shares for three years. So Constellation has never issued options and they've never issued shares to employees. So I think share count has been 21 million shares since the IPO in 2006. So his focus on caring for investors and incentivizing employees to invest in the business is unusual. And for us, gives us it's just so special that everybody is really invested in the success of the company. And, you know, as a corollary to that, Mark doesn't like when the stock gets too high or out of whack relative to what he thinks the fundamentals are. So, you know, he doesn't really do investor meetings and he doesn't do a conference call anymore. So if you want to see him, you have to go to the shareholder meeting. The first shareholder meeting I attended, which I think was in 2016 or 2017, the stock was around $600 a share. And he was actively telling those in the audience that he thought the stock was too expensive. And stocks now, I think I don't know where it is today, but it's, uh, I think, 2900 Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But at 600 he was telling us it was too expensive. I remember a year after that, I came back to the meeting and he said the same thing. The stock was maybe at 800 at the time. And he thought the stock was too expensive. So I think that indicates that he's very focused on the fundamentals and making sure that the stock doesn't get out of whack and not being promotional. But I've also found it's very unusual that a management team thinks their stock is too expensive. And if they say something that unusual, it's worth paying attention to. To me, it was something that was attractive and consistent with his understated personality and the way he ran the business. But it certainly was something that you don't hear very often. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, And it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. 
Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I wonder what Mark would say today because at the time of this recording, the stock is currently at $2,316, which is essentially its all-time high. It only hit this level right at the end of December 2021, much like a lot of companies who are hitting their all-time highs right before the bear market began. But what's so remarkable about this stock is how quickly it's recovered back to its all-time high, even after 2022. It is. And when you look at what's occurred underneath the business, it's a little bit less remarkable. I'll tell you why. Number one, the business always is traded at a moderate free cash flow yield. So today it trades at a 4.5% free cash flow yield on 2023 free cash flow. And uh, it never really gets expensive. So it tends to trade on the fundamentals. And number one, because so much of revenue is recurring, it doesn't fluctuate, organic revenue doesn't fluctuate uh, to a great extent. But I think number two, through the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, Constellation continued to execute extremely well. And the stock went down with the market, but has since come back primarily because I think in this environment, you know, they say the stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term. It, the stock market has become more of a weighing machine this year and last year relative to in 21 and in 20, it was more of a voting machine. So because it's so cash generative, the market, I think, has given it a little bit more credit and has allowed the business to come back. It was not one of those businesses that was driven on revenue growth or the metrics that dominated uh, the post-pandemic rally. So I'm not that surprised that it's come back as well as it has. I think they've done a, a really good job of growing the business in the pandemic and through the pandemic. So if you just, you know, if you look at, you know, the performance, businesses continue to grow. And, you know, this year it looks like it grew 25, 28% going to continue to grow at a high rate. And the stock, uh, I think, is representing the fact that all of that is translating to good free cash flow growth. So that's kind of an interesting point about its cheapness, if you will, with the 4.5% free cash flow yield. 
multiple and it's a $50 billion company and its PE is sitting at 75, right? Which is pretty high. I think no matter what kind of business you're looking at, it would be considered high, even though this is a very established business with strong earnings. So for a company like this, that's especially more mature and a tech company, I guess, if you will, knowing that you don't emphasize valuation when you're looking at these numbers, what metrics should investors focus on if it's not the PE ratio? Well, I think that at least on the forward basis, it trades closer to 32 times earnings, which is not low by any means. Our focus is, you know, our North Star is free cash flow per share and uh, a multiple of free cash flow per share. So the way we assess businesses is we're always looking at what the free cash flow per share is for these companies on a forward basis and the rate at which we think those businesses will compound free cash flow per share in the future. So we're always looking at, as we think about making investments and as flows come in, flows come out, we're always looking at what's the best return on our capital? At what rate can we generate compounding with with a particular business? And what's the multiple of free cash flow per share that we will have to pay to to get that rate of compounding? With Constellation today, as we look at the market uh, and we look at rates, we tend to think that the current multiple or the current yield of 4.5% is relatively attractive relative to the other opportunities for capital in these protected, durable compounding businesses that we focus on. So we're not uh, particularly concerned about the current valuation. And I think that relative to the other options and the uh, multiples on free cash flow, it continues to be something that uh, is attractive. So there's another holding that reminds me a little bit of Constellation I want to talk about, which is FactSet. It's almost like a, another semi-niche tech software type of company, if you will. I'm wondering if this is sort of a, a smaller version of Constellation that could grow up to be something more like a Constellation, if you will, because it's only around a $420 stock at the moment. It's about $15 billion market cap. Talk to us about what FactSet does and why you're drawn to this as well. You know, FactSet, as you probably know, and anybody in the financial services industry probably knows the business. It's a leading provider of financial data, economic data to financial professionals around the world. It's a subscription service that uh, many of us use to find information on businesses. So uh company has over 180,000 global users and 95% of revenues are generated through subscriptions. So those subscriptions are fairly expensive. I think what's also attractive about the company is that it's grown revenues 42 consecutive years and earnings 26 consecutive years as a public company. So we appreciate the consistency of the company. And what we also appreciate is the recurring revenue nature of the company. And I want to take a minute and step back and just talk a little bit about the way we look at recurring revenue. We think not, not all recurring revenue is created equal. Oftentimes, recurring revenue is divided into subscription recurring and transactional recurring. So I'll give you an example of both. A transactional recurring revenue business would be one of the credit bureaus where there's only three credit bureaus in the United States. And normally, uh, if somebody's credit is is being run for a mortgage or, or, or something credit related, you have to ping uh, two out of the three bureaus for a score. But if mortgage activity declines, that revenue will decline as well. So that'd be considered transactional recurring revenue. In the case of FactSet, it's a subscription recurring revenue business where somebody pays a subscription on an annual basis for the use of, of the product. And oftentimes it's multi-year subscriptions in the case of FactSet. 
So we think that there's a real difference between the two. And of course, we favor subscription recurring because of its durability and predictability. It's been a business that we've owned uh, primarily because we're attracted to the predictability of the company and the fact that the business generates 40% or so returns and fantastic, predictable free cash flow growth. So from that backdrop, it's it's attractive for us. And I think one of the key triggers for us was uh, was a new CFO coming into the company who had come from other businesses like Faxet. And our impression is that Linda Huber is going to do a great job in getting a little bit more control over the cost of the company, perhaps improving the capital allocation decision-making and continuing to position the company to generate predictable free cash flow growth and, and revenue growth for a long period of time. So it's a great business that has performed really well over the years. It's a business we really understand because we use the product and it's a business that we think is very durable and predictable. So it really fits our approach. You mentioned the hiring of CFO. A lot of major companies in this industry, or I guess in software, et cetera, tech, are laying off people at the moment, You know, getting ready for this impending recession everyone's talking about. Meanwhile, this company's hiring, it would appear. Are you seeing differences like that in the news or are those indicators, if you will, of stronger businesses or, or companies that are more supported or more set up to succeed in, in a period we're heading into? You know, I think that the businesses that have tended to lay off people in tech have generally been those businesses that have seen demand pulled forward because of the pandemic. So, you know, Satya Nadella talked about that on the Microsoft call a couple of nights ago, maybe I think two nights ago, where he's seen customers optimize their spend because they've made such strong investments in IT over the last couple of years, uh, somewhat driven by a pandemic pull forward. So I think at the same time, those software companies had to invest in people and grow their staff to uh, respond to the demands that customers put on them over the last couple of years. As I see it, companies are just making an adjustment to bring their staff back to a more normalized level. But as we look at the the data on on employment for tech businesses, their companies are not bringing their staffs back to a level that looked like the 2020 or 2019 level. There's someplace in between 2020 and where they were at the end of this past year. So there's been some modest reductions. I think we tend to think that they're going to be muted generally. In the case of FactSet, because of its business in supporting financial professionals uh, with great market data, it wasn't particularly impacted by the pandemic negatively or positively. So we don't, we tend to not think that there's going to be much of an impact there or much of an impact from the customer base as well. Yeah. And to your point about Satya Nadella and Microsoft, they announced 10,000, I think, uh, layoffs recently, which is only about 5% or so of their overall employment. And if you were looking at it through the eyes of Jack Welch, you know, at, at GE, I believe he would cut <laughs> 10% annually, you know, just as a right. rule of thumb. So you're right. right. It, could, it could be looked at as a very reasonable move or something almost yeah. prudent or practical. Um, yes, I think that's right. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about semiconductors because they've received such a large amount of attention over the last few years, especially after supply chains broke down and semi shortages began to affect what felt like nearly everything. Berkshire Hathaway even recently took a stake in TSM and, and others seem to be following suit. But given your background, I wanted to get your opinion on the space. And if you had to pick a top semiconductor business to invest in today, which one would you choose? 
I think that the semiconductor industry has evolved significantly over the last several years. It continues to be, I think, an, an attractive place to look for ideas, but we're always very cautious about investing in semis because they're at the edge of technology change. And so we generally stay away from businesses that are undergoing technology change. Buffett has a, has a line where he says, generally the best investments uh, or the best businesses are those businesses that are doing something somewhat similar to what they've been doing over the last couple of years. So with, with uh, semis, it's always a challenge because product cycles tend to be very short. And there's a lot of smart people that are driving a lot of innovation in semis. So they tend to be a little bit more difficult to predict in general. So we're very, very selective if we make an investment there. We uh, have been investors with Broadcom and Hawk Tan for a number of years. And I think that there's so many incredible attributes to Hawk and to Broadcom. But one of the key, I think, features of the approach at Broadcom is a real humble approach to running the business. They're not looking to make the hot new product that will take over the world. They're looking at making incremental changes to their existing franchises to make them better and respond to customer needs. So what's attractive about Broadcom is that they're involved in 30 key markets, which they call franchises, where they're the dominant provider of the technology. And it tends to be areas that are um, relatively unattractive for the fastest growing semi uh, companies. So they're the dominant player in hard disk drive. Hard disk drive is not the sexiest place to be in semis. They're the dominant provider of chipsets that go into cable set top boxes. And they're, they're, they're the dominant player in, in fast growing networking equipment as well. But they generally take a conservative approach to investments and they generally take an incremental approach to R&D development. So we like the fact that they have these dominant niches that provide them with a level of recurring revenue, that provide them with a level of stickiness and protection. And we like the fact that they're not out there competing against the, the heavyweights in the, in the cutting edge areas of semis. And I think as important, Hawk 10 has proven to be an unbelievably gifted capital allocator and investor. You know, some of the, the greatest CEOs are the greatest investors. You know, Hawk and his team have built a business. Basically, uh, in 2009, they IPO'd a billion dollar, $2 billion market cap company. Broadcom today is, I don't know, the 30th largest company in the S&P 500, a couple hundred billion dollars in market cap. And they did that by identifying the fact that the semiconductor industry was too fragmented, unconsolidated, and an industry that Hawk believes grows at GDP plus a couple of points. And because of that needed to be consolidated, and he took a strategy of consolidating the industry over the last 15 years or so that allowed him to put together these strong niche businesses and also allowed him to now pivot when the environment for acquiring semiconductor businesses turned against him. So as you may know, he tried to acquire Qualcomm and the US government blocked that deal. And I think that he paused, looked at the opportunity set in semis and decided that the opportunity, that the valuations in semis were too expensive 
and that the attractive deals were no longer available to him. And so instead of giving up, he looked elsewhere and applied his principles to software. So he then acquired CA Technologies and a couple of other software businesses, which were synergistic with the semi-business. He was able to drive significant uh, returns from those uh, acquisitions. And so now his business, assuming he closes the VMware deal, is going to be 50% semis and 50% software and a business today that generates 60% plus free cash flow margins. So it's the most profitable semi-business on earth. And it's it's the business that is probably the most predictable of all of them. I mentioned Berkshire buying TSM, but given your background, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Berkshire's purchase of precision cast parts, because for, you were an analyst on that space as well for a long time and have intimate knowledge of that company. In your opinion, where did Buffett go wrong here and how are the company's future prospects looking? Well, you know, nobody bats a thousand. And of course, he's the greatest investor of our time. But I think I think it shows you that we all can make mistakes. And I think with Precision Cast Parts, what was evident to us as analysts was that Precision was losing market share to its competitors and that Precision operated in an incredibly difficult and competitive space. So in addition to that, the business was highly reliant on just a couple of customers. So if you lost those customers, if you lost Rolls-Royce, or if you lost Saffron, or if you lost GE, you were in deep trouble as a, as a company. They certainly had enormous amounts of market of, of power over PCP. And I think that it's, it's a lesson for all of us to assess the competitive position of a company carefully uh, before making a decision. And I think that, that would, that's the difficulty. I think that the macro environment also went against the story. Precision had a significant amount of exposure to energy, and the energy patch went south after the deal as well. But I think the key lesson from that acquisition is that the competitive dynamics were deteriorating before the deal was announced and had been deteriorating for quite a long period of time. And I think that, that it's, it's so important to not invest in a situation where the competitive dynamic is, is going against you. And as Peter Lynch would say, wait for the data to go your direction before you make the investment. Some would say that the, that the market revalues stocks before you can see the, see the proof of that. But most of the time, you have enough time to assess the situation in the new data and determine that the story is getting better, there's still time to make the investment. So I think the learning lesson is that if the competitive dynamics are deteriorating, just wait and see how the story plays out before you step in. And look for companies with the diversified revenue streams, as you kind of highlighted through a few of your examples here today. I really encourage everyone to look at the New America Premier Equities Fund from TCW. Uh, Joseph, before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to hand off to the audience where they can learn more about the fund and about you and a couple other things you might be working on or where you want people to learn more about the fund or about you. Well, of course, uh, it's been uh, so much fun to, to be with you and congratulations on all the success of the podcast. They can find more information about us, myself and TCW at tcw.com. And of course, there's fun information available there as well. 
Fantastic. Well, Joseph, I really appreciate your time and I hope we can do this again soon. Really fascinating portfolio you've got here and I'm going to be digging a lot deeper here. So I appreciate the time and let's do it again. So much fun. Thank you so much, Trey. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, please leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you want to reach out directly, you can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all of the amazing resources we've built for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can also simply Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.